It's Primus Tracks with Josh, Frankie, and Sawyer. What a couple of dumb shits. Hello, primates! You found Primus Tracks. Congratulations. I am Josh. Of course, you can find us at uh, Primus Tracks on Instagram and Twitter. But I need to bring in our two contenders today for the heavyweight championship of Primus. In this corner, the six foot three encyclopedia. He is a right hook of knowledge. It's Frankie. Hi, Josh. Wow, for a boxing match, you sound really cheerful. I'm pretty pumped up about this track, Josh. In <laughs> fact, today, in preparation for this episode, I watched Gladiator, the 1992 film with Kuva wow. Gooding Jr. and James Marshall for the 12th time. Well, it sounds like you are ready. I just watched Raging Bull on mute while I power drank, so I'm ready today, too. Watch us saunter off to your corner over there while I bring in uh, today's contender. He is the man of immeasurables. He comes from a land no one can pronounce. He gives new meaning to the term body blow. Tim Sawyer! This is for the belts, Frankie. For the belts. (laughs) It's for everything. (laughs) It's for everything, guys. Just know... David Bowie's not allowed on this episode either. <laughs> okay. That's right. He's got a nugget. Oh, whatever. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This is all going to be fun. Okay. A gentleman, I do want a clean podcast. No hot takes. Soya, uh, yeah, I won't lo- allow any Bowie nuggets. Uh, unless, you know, my back is turned and Frankie pulls out a folding chair, which it happens every once in a while. So if um, I have to go pee, I always come back and I hear some Bowie story going on. <laughs> and I, like, I have to yeah. shut it down, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Come on, man. It's all fun and games. I'm just kidding, Frankie. You know that. (laughs) Well, we have a couple of things to take care of before we jump into today's track, which is, of course, track two from the Brown Album named Fisticuffs. And I always struggle with the term, actually. I always think I should say it like Les does on the song, Fisticuffs. Or I always think I should say it like a mobster and say, meh, Fisticuffs, see? So I always have a tough time. I'm struggling with that, but we'll work it out over the course of the episode. Uh, we have a few five-star reviews that are left over on Apple Podcast, and if you would like to join the Punchbowl, you can also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Say whatever you want. We'll read it on the air. This one is a few months old, so we are clear in the backlog. Today's five-star review comes from Adeliezer, who says, Cheesy. Great podcast. Great deep dives into every Primus song with great guests involved with all the projects along the way. Great listen. Smiley face. Thanks, Adeliezer. And I got to say, those great guests really uh, only started really coming into the fold when soya well you know it's it's appropriate that those people are involved whether it's official primus biz or not you know they were there we're just talking fun stuff so i'm trying to drag them all into this thing dude yeah thanks again everybody uh, for your five-star reviews we got a couple more to read and it turns out apparently audible has a review section too so there's i've got at least one to read there so you can leave a five-star review on apple podcast audible you can dm it to us on instagram i think i have one from there to read as well so we'll get to them as we get through the brown album we also need to thank a whole host of people who need to book some passage on Captain Shiner's yacht because they were very kind in their contributions to keep things going as far as server costs. And, of course, they received stickers in return. If you would like to receive beautifully designed stickers printed by Sticker Robot and designed by Frankie, please uh, send us a DM on Instagram. And I guess if you want to, you can email me, smashysmashy at gmail.com. Here is a laundry list of wonderful people who have contributed in the past couple of months. Eric in Australia, good to reconnect with you, buddy. Uh, Ernesto, Landon, Luis in Florida, Hunter, Chris, Mike in L.A., Seth, Mark in the Netherlands, Stephen in England, Christopher in Texas. Holy moly, we are sending stickers all over the globe. So keep it up, folks. That's rad. That's dope. Yeah, yeah. if you plaster them anywhere, please send us a photo to be featured on our Instagram. And yeah. then next year when the tour starts, I need a, a, a gang load for sticking around the world, you know? Oh, yeah, I got a pack with your name on them, dude. Right on. <laughs> you bet. Let's talk about Fisticuffs, track two from the Brown Album, and as we often do, uh, we start with live history. Frankie? Well, Josh, this one is um, pretty regular. There are just a handful of performances in, between 1997 and 1998, just a couple in 1998, as a matter of fact. These performances were essentially like the album version. Uh, they were not doing you know, anything different with the track. As we discussed previously, you know, maybe with, like Soya mentioned, uh, if they're at a festival, you know, they don't have room for these kind of deep cuts. They got to stick to the hits. Um, if they're headlining their own show, I guess it comes down to them, you know, maybe not enjoying the live performance of these songs as much. So, you know, 
either one of those could explain why the track was so rare during the promotion of the album it belongs to. It would disappear for a whole decade until it came back in 2008 with the fancy band, you know, with a completely different arrangement, uh, completely reimagined. We're actually going to listen to that um, at the end of, of the episode. Um, I've never seen that that live with oh, the it's, band. Oh, it's quite interesting. You know, they, they really took it to a different place. And then the Funky Band carried on uh, performing the track quite regularly, of course, with a different arrangement to accommodate, you know, the, the band that Bliss had at that time. Um, in both cases, you know, with Fancy Band and with Funky Band, as you can expect from any Les Claypool side project, they really jammed on, on the track during live performances. And after that, that's where it came back, you know, with Primus. From 2010 up to 2019, uh, the song has been in constant rotation throughout the tours. It also became a jam vehicle. Um, sometimes they would incorporate Tomorrow Never Knows into the song. And yeah. in other cases, you know, they would just jam on it. Of particular interest are the Chocolate Factory performances, where Fisticuffs had an unusual spot on the set list as an encore. Uh, you know, they would incorporate all the musicians to have, you know, some solo spots during, during the track. So those are pretty interesting. Frankie, uh, can you tell me who was the drummer in the fancy band? Was it Steamy Dean? Paolo Baldi. He was our, uh, that was the first band he was in with Gabby, right? Okay. Yeah, Paolo Baldi was. Paolo Baldi's kind of pretty band. much been the drummer since I mean, he got the he, gig. Right? He did play some Frog Brigade shows, actually, but okay. I guess his claim to fame was with Fancy Band. Okay. That was his first regular gig, I think, and he's definitely stuck around over the years. And actually, that is the first fisticuffs I got was from the Fungi Band. I had never been lucky enough to see Primus do it up to that point, where it sounds like it was fairly rare anyway. And then with Jay and Tim Alexander, I got it a few more times. So uh, it was really interesting for my first experience to be fisticuffs because I went, yes, a Primus tune from the Fungi Band. This is going to be interesting. It was a great show, though. I really enjoyed that show with that lineup. Uh, and this is one of those tunes, and we've talked about this before, Frankie, that, uh, you know, if Les really likes a Primus tune, the solo bands will play it. And he must have, absolutely. Uh, you know, at some point he must have just picked that one and gone, oh, yeah, I like this one. We'll pull it out for the fancy band, fungi band, and this sort of thing. And maybe you can help me with this, Frankie. As far as I can tell, only four Brown Album tracks have been performed live by the three Primus principal drummers, Brain, Jay, Tim Alexander. Um, and I think we actually start a run of them with Fisticuffs, because by my count, we've got Fisticuffs, Golden Boy, Over the Falls, Shake Hands of Beef. What about Duchess? Oh, Duchess, I think, I think was the other one I had in mind. You're right. Yes. Yeah. I think we're at five. Yeah. I think that's that's another that's another one. All of well, them wasn't, I'm going to say that I, I don't remember them doing Fisticuffs on Wonka in the encore. I thought Duchess they was did. always the one. Oh, Duchess was an encore as well, but so was Fisticuffs. That's like the end of the show. <laughs> You're was busy. like two, tw two 12 packs in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, I don't know yeah. why that one doesn't strike me as one that I remember them doing because mm -hmm. that song just doesn't do much. But I guess when you uh, jam vehicle a song, it could go anywhere. Yeah, I guess because it's, it's, it's a strange position for that track. I mean, it's kind of like when they end the concert with Here Come the Bastards. It's kind of weird. Yeah. That became every concert yeah. or every Wonka show because we did right. the video montage of me downtown wherever we were. Yeah. Yeah, so that they would come out and do, you know, Duchess was pretty much, I mean, Frankie, right, was the most played encore on Wonka. Would have yeah, totally. Definitely. <clears throat> but then maybe Les did mix it up a few times and it was so far and few between, I don't remember it, you know. And then it would go into Bastards and then we'd load out. The other thing I, we should note, uh, Frankie, is that we're getting into the era of the internet, you know, 1997. and right. Uh, set lists are becoming easier and easier to find so we're getting more a more complete picture of going forward with brown album tracks Rhino there are Rhapsody still some so on, some right? gaps there are still mm -hmm. some mysteries but yeah pretty much we have courtesy of Toasterland is 143 documented live performances of fisticuffs from 97 to present which puts wow. it only five ahead of the seven which tells you a couple of things <laughs> that fisticuffs wasn't played that much in the seven was played a lot Soya, you were there. Is this yep. one of the tracks? I want to start with this. Is this one of the tracks, if you recall, that they had jammed out or worked on before going to Rancho to record? It's fun. Interesting. I listened to that brain interview we did again. And uh, one thing we failed to talk about was we had the jam room at Ultrasound. Basically, it's just a roll-up door warehouse that Primus had where all the Ultrasound 
sound company stuff was. It was one of the bays, you know. I think it was when Brain came in, they decided that okay, we're gonna build this back end of it. We did a two-story build out where the downstairs was a jam room and the upstairs became prawn song, right? And so that became yeah. where the rehearsals happened, you know, they, they had their spot, you know. What I was saying about with Brain, that's when they started working on the songs for this record, you know, like there were rehearsals that happened before we actually went up to Les's. Right. And I remember I remember some of the tunes, particularly one of them was Bob's Party Time Lounge. I remember Les, you know, them taking a break and going, what do you think? So what do you think about that? And I'm like, yeah, that one bass line. Do, 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 do. I was like, yeah. you know, it was like kind of that kind of interactions were going on. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of when Brain first got in there and Les wanted to kind of jam out before we took everything up to his place. And Brain didn't really have his drum kit yet. We hadn't, you know, we were just putting it together. We were just using a bunch of stuff, you know? Yeah. And then we got that Vista Light kit and we got the North drums and we made it. And then we moved it all up to Les's, you know? So there was, there was some songs that there was parts that were worked out, not worked out, but just jammed. And we recorded everything just, you know, we had two room mics up with a tape recorder recording thing okay. and a little mixing board for little wedges that were in the room, you know? It was really low lo-fi, but stuff was captured and stuff was revisited once we got up to lessons that were like, okay, that's cool. Yeah, we listened to that tape. That was cool. I, I, I seriously can't remember which tunes were actually worked more than others, you know, or whether there was a snippet of some jam just trying to find something that became a song, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, listening to this song, I listened to it a couple times actually in this last week and I'm going to say this one was pretty made up. I, I don't remember them working on this one before they got in the studio. To me, the arrangement and the way it just goes A, B, A, B, A, B. And it's like, eh. So it doesn't sound like it was planned ahead of time. Okay. Okay. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that, that is a bad thing or right. in a bad way. It's just a lot of, a lot of Punchbowl tunes and a lot of the Brown Album tunes were just kind of like free-flowing jams that became songs, you know? Yeah. Whether yeah. there was th- – this is the first time they actually worked on stuff before, whereas Punchbowl, we didn't do a rehearsal for the Punchbowl re- recording, you know? Right. Well, to that end, and this is news for Frankie, too, because I have uh, acquired via eBay a copy of that tape that uh, when they were jamming there at Ultrasound before going up to Rancho Relaxo. You didn't know you this. You got song, a copy? I got a copy of, of it. Yeah. You want to hear a portion of it? Okay. How the hell did you get that? You'll know when you hear it, because check this out. This is, they clearly were jamming out on this track uh, beforehand. Listen to this evidence I have. There it is. Look, it's fisticuffs. <laughs> so yeah, that's a joke. That's Georgie Porch from the Mackerel album. I was like, is that hats off? That doesn't sound like... <laughs> You're... You're I'm being a chain, dork. dude. The reason I played that is because I remember when this record came out, the Brown album, that is, yep. that people on the bull board, the old Bumblebee board back in 97, were pissing I and moaning know. that Les ripped himself off, that Fisticuff yep. sounded too much like Georgie Porge and blah, blah, blah. There was a lot of kvetching about that, I remember, that he recycled wow. that bass line. So <laughs> That's incredible because I never put that together either of the other things that you guys have pointed out. There. You know, it's, it's interesting that you point that one out, Josh, because in my case... Besides Georgie Porgy, the opening of Barrington Hall also kind yep. of reminds me of Fisticuffs as well. Hmm. The, I think Les has this this kind of default line that he does, and because I'm thinking of Last Salmon and Man as well, where it's bam 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 bam, and I'm, that's just the percussive part, right? Not the notes, but I think I he's just kind of got that yeah, yeah. default rhythm in his in his mind sometimes, and he goes to it, but he's do, using it different different ways. Funny because yeah. the way you just set that up, and I'm listening like with my eyes closed thinking okay they're in the jam room and you got some tape and it it was very similar only just a couple notes were different yeah <laughs> the georgie porge and fisticuffs those two are pretty close and then and That's then amazing. like frankie like you said barrington and that and salmon man are close ish but george and fisties are pretty close yeah totally that's a very similar riff. Yeah. So I'm curious if they were, uh, in a sense, and maybe um, Les and Brain both, in a sense, were mining some of that mackerel material because it was in their heads. They had just toured it. And... I'm going to tell you right now that I would say that, that that's very unconscious yeah. thing yeah. that happened. You know, I'm not Les Claypool, but you yeah. know, I'm saying I was around for all that stuff, and I know he's not trying to rip himself off or mm-hmm. – well, that's one of those you know, things where and, water down some older licks and make them a new lick. You know, that's yeah. not what he's about. I think what happens, though, is when you're writing hundreds of songs over many, many years, you're going to revisit familiar territory without even knowing it. Put up yeah. into the forefront 
whoever complains about Angus Young writing the same guitar riff for 30, 40 years, you know, every album yeah. sounds like the same <laughs> fucking riff, same four songs, you know, yeah. just keep getting re rerouted and redone and refixed, you yep. know, or, you know, whatever. and it's I'm like, and they sell and they, everybody yeah. loves it. No one ever goes, Oh, they played back in black again. It's like, yeah. everyone goes, so there it is again. We love it. It's Angus. It's like, uh, you know, I'm a big Motorhead fan. They released 16 albums and <laughs> they definitely had a sound and a lot of them sound really similar, but I love them, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 So definitely wasn't a complaint for me, but I just remember even back in 97, people crying about that. But, uh, so it's funny. I, I never really read the bullboard too much. I, I think I probably for the better. <laughs> Adam and, and others, Ultron dude got me involved in it. You know, the tales from the road hog and, yeah. They kept telling me, dude, you're all over the bullboard. You got to read it, man. I'm like, dude, I, I don't have time to sit here and read what Primus fans are talking about me and Primus. It's like I'm working all day for this band. It's, it's not my spare time to read this shit. Right. You know? Yeah. So I never really delved too deep into that bullboard thing. You know? <laughs> it is my absolute firm belief that shit posting was invented on that old bullboard. <laughs> That that is where that it's whole actually probably a good started. thing that I wasn't on it and oh. getting my in there because I probably would have stirred up some some shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, people would have would have loved it to see a name in red stirring up shit. They'd have been like, "Oh, cool, we're gonna spar with Soya." Whoever I would have be. taken, I would have taken fuckers out back then. <laughs> I, I wasn't as mature as I am now, which I don't know how mature I am now. So anyway, yeah, back to the baseline, uh, not to give a short shrift, but, you know, there really isn't too much fancy fir- footwork with it, but we get that that plotting, bram, 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 da, da, and it's, mm-hmm. I like it, you know? He's not doing a lot of thumping and plucking, but we get a baseline that moves, and then we get kind of a more muted, low-key version of it during the verses, so we get to bounce a little bit along with it, and I think that's what mm-hmm. where some of the charm of this track comes from, is the bounciness to it, and I do also want to mention the drums, because... When I play Georgie Porge with that similar bass line, when I imagine fisticuffs with with, uh, the regular drum beat hitting the snare on the two and the four, it's just jaunty. And this is a darker tune, right? So brain hitting on the one and the three. I do remember, and Frank, you probably remember this too, in some interview, Les said that uh, he was, I don't know if he asked brain to hit it on the one and the three or brain just started doing it. He said, boy, brain was hitting that snare on the one and the three in fisticuffs. It just, I just imagined boxers popping each other and i think that's probably where the lyrical connection came from do you remember that frankie yeah i vaguely remember that it's true yeah that was around the release of the album it could be that that minute of a of a snippet of something that happened that spawns a whole lyrical writing you know yeah this is going to be what the song's about i mean that that sounds totally legit i I haven't heard that interview so i don't i I don't know about that yeah oh gosh this would have been an internet or magazine interview from 97 when i was just tracking down everything i could you know, <laughs> ah, right? Okay, so it was in the moment. Les was still fresh on the moment yeah. of the songs, right? Okay. Yeah, it must have been right after release when they were doing all the, or right before when they were doing all their press. The bassline and and the drums are, you know, really amazing. But what really stands out for me in the entire song is the guitar work. It's incredibly evocative. Yeah. You know, it really paints this picture of an 1800s cityscape, you know, with smoke coming out from the factories and the old cars. You can yeah. just picture it in your mind by listening to that guitar riff. It's absolutely incredible how Larry yeah. came up with that. You know, and it's not too far off from what some would call a conventional guitar lick. What I mean by that is, and I, I haven't sat down to really figure it out, but it sounds like he's starting essentially on the root note and then going up a step or a step and a half. And then down below the root note, a step, and then back up to the root note. And that is, you hear that a lot in rock music and a lot of different things. It's not too out of the ordinary, but it's really satisfying to go above it, below it, back to the root, repeat. And I'm sure he's using an octave pedal or something to get that really big sound that he's got there. But it really does uh, sound industrial, Frankie. I'm I'm vibing with you on that because in my notes I wrote, in the guitar solo especially, and I do want to play the guitar solo, it just sounds like scraping metal on metal. That's what I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> like a car yeah, in, the, yeah. in the crusher, you know? Those sounds are, like you said, it does feel like billowing smoke, brick buildings, molten metal, dudes losing their arm and not having insurance, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> well, I will say I remember when we got the back to rehearsals after this was all done and those guys had to work the songs out how to play them live. Lur was using like all pedals. Like he used to use that ADA thing that Les had, you know, which was the built-in sounds. Uh-huh. And by the time we started recording Punchbowl and we did Punchbowl and then we get to this, it's like, 
he was like stomp box collector like just any cool stomp box he was trying everything and anything and anything vintage he could get that was cool and i remember building that stomp box for him for this one because i remember being at ultrasound rehearsal space and putting it together and trying to make it happen i can't tell you what pedals he was using because that's not allowed fair secrets but yeah he had some really cool like vintage stuff and he had some really cool new stuff you know but that's pretty much what made all that stuff you know there was no stomp box that he hit and it made that sound he had like 20 things on a pedal board he knew which ones to hit to combine now to make that metal on metal sound was cool you know too does he use a slide i think he's using slide the whole time yeah yeah Yeah, he's like sliding around yeah 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 Yeah. and i think that also enhances the solo and really gives it that scraping sound uh or grinding of metal on metal uh i do want to play that solo because it's short and sweet but it just has uh it's just such fantastic sound let's all enjoy it together shall we It's like the foundations of Lurland. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, he's he's like, doing it, and it he definitely he double tracked that right. That's what's cool because there's two two guitars going there because especially yeah. when he's sliding down at the end, you can hear the difference in him. It's really great that he does that. You know, even though it's analog and all that stuff, like you can just you just feel surrounded or you feel like you're in the crusher with this car that's being cubed. You know, yeah. it's yeah. really cool. It's a great part. Great, great stuff. For yeah. Sure. Big fan of that solo, you know, really nice payoff there. It's not a spectacular track, showcase track in in the traditional Primus sense, but there are a lot of little things going on with the solo. Lur's main riff that you pointed out, Frankie, with that really satisfying above the root, yeah. down below the root, back to the root. And then even Les is starting to sing a little bit, even on this this track, where he's playing the main riff, doing the verse, but then his voice goes up a step when he gets to the, mm-hmm. he knew the game of fisticuffs part. He goes, his bass uh, line goes up a step and his vocals go up with it, even though he's doing spoken word essentially. So he's, he's following that and giving it some more atmosphere, some more little things. It's all little yeah. things. So it's kind of a. Yeah, but I, but yeah. I do think it's an incredibly solid track oh, in yeah. the context of the album. I think this is like a textbook track for the album because we, yeah. and of course, Frankie, you've read all the same interviews as me. He said, I'm not using these bombastic, really funny characters who have a dark side. It's pretty much all grit and and the darker side of it. You know, there's no goofiness to this, especially when we get to the lyrics, but he kind of stripped that away and we're getting the grittiness and it's coming forth in the sound, the mix, the lyrics, the the vocal delivery, the scraping guitar solo. So it it just feels <laughs> yeah. like like this is the brownest Maybe of all the Brown album tracks, but maybe yeah. we'll do our Brown rankings after Arnie. The one thing that uh, I captured in my own brain of remembrance was, <clears throat> obviously, I've told you guys and me and Brain discussed it in his interview, was that we only used a few mics on the drums on this. Yeah. The, the, when it was in the, the main Rancho Relaxo room, when he hits the octagon in this song, it like sounds like it's over there. Like it's, there's no mic on it, you know? And the thing that it's it's like, I I hear the room and I hear that room and I hear that room in every record that Les records up there. Cause it's the same room. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, that was the moment it really got to that point. That was like record number three I'd done up there with those guys. Cause I did punch bowl, Holy mackerel. And then that one. Uh And I just, I I just want mics on everything. I want to hear it, you know, and I want reverb on it. It's like, there's just natural reverb, but the, that North drum, that little eight inch North drum sounds like it's across the room and it, damn it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was the yeah. vibe, you know, and it's like yeah. what brain said, you know, it, it was the vibe we went for, you know, and we all sat around and said, okay, here it is. <laughs> we all agreed. Yeah. Let's go. You and know? I, I'm not complaining. I'm not saying I don't like it. Yeah. I'm just like, God, I wish there was a mic on that damn little octavon, you know? Well, I'm curious about your thoughts then on the proceeding tour. Um, as well as Frankie, too, because you've listened to as many recordings or more recordings than I have. I'm, of course, thinking of something like Videoplasty, where they're playing some of the Brown album tracks live. And I'm going, man, I remember being in a as a teenager going, why didn't they record it like this? It sounds so clear and so good. Yeah. So so I'm curious, too, because you were on the tours, of course. Uh, how different did it sound in a live setting? That's funny you say that, because I, I was never able to put that context of difference in my brain 
because it was like, okay, we're on the tour, we're working, here we go, and you play, we're live now. It's a yeah. live show, and I was never in a position in my own head to go, God damn, like what you just said was was perfect. It's amazing you you put that together as well, you know. But when I just listened to the Brown album this week, and I was like, I could just hear that room. It's like, oh, and there's no mics. It's like, God damn it, why, why couldn't we just put them on there and not use them or use them if we wanted to? You know, yeah. It was just this concept that Les had, and we all went with it you know yeah. and this was in the, a good way not in it we didn't go against the grain yeah. of what he wanted to do we all said okay yeah that's cool let's do yeah. this let's just put up a, as few mics as we can and capture this crazy weird sound you know if if you recall was this in the regular room or was this in the big yeah this song room? was in in the main room yeah okay those two rooms i'm trying to tune my ear to figure out which is which and i think i know which they are so it's i'll guess obvious every time. I mean, i'll guess it, every time the the one mic room out in the tile pool table room is pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Arnie and that first one, and yep. Rest as we go through them, I'll tell you what they are. But I'd have to. Li- I can't remember. I listened to the whole album the other day, and I was like laughing, but whatever. <laughs> it just was such a funny moment and a weird recording experience, you know. I don't know if this will come across, but I do have a drum question for you. It sounds like at some of the four ands, it sounds like Brain might be using either using the floor tom and the kick to approximate a double kick, or is he like actually double kicking that one pedal? Because there is a bunch of spots where it sounds like he's doing that. No, I mean, Brain would always play super fast double hits on the kick, Okay, on the single kick, you know? I think the only time I ever remember him actually using the floor tom to simulate, simulate double kick was in Winona's Big Brown Beaver. Oh, okay. All right. So he's- he used the left-north floor tom that we had. Yeah. Do the brum bump, brum yeah. bump, because you know it's impossible to play that with a single kick drum, right. that killer part that Tim played. So yeah, uh, on this record, I, I think he just he played what he played. He never tried to pretend he had double kicks. If you hear some super fast two kick drum things going, he played it on one kick drum. Oh dang, yeah, because there are some spots I think on the four end where it's like brat, you know, onto the snare. Yeah, that would be his so. his single foot for Holy sure. Holy cow, because that and for I was sure. trying to listen closely, and I just don't have a trained ear, especially because it's the Browns. <laughs> sound and nobody can really translate it so it was you know it was it was tough but i'm going i can't tell i think he's doing it he's not flubbing it with the floor tom he's he's melting your face is what i'm saying <laughs> rocking well i like when he does that before we get into the lyrics i do want to ask this because on the on the tours i do remember with in some interviews and these would be back in the mid 90s of course you know primus was being interviewed and the interviewer or the person writing the article was trying to really set the scene and they were saying yeah we're on the tour bus or we're in Les's living room and the guys are getting ready to watch an MMA fight and I'm trying to ask him questions and that kind of shit. So I was curious if, you know, one of the ways to pass the time, if if you guys were into watching a lot of MMA, wrestling, and boxing and that sort of thing, just... I'll I'll, I'll tell you where that all spawned. Yeah. I, it really didn't have much to do with this song. I think you nailed where the lyrics to this song came from. But yeah. When we were doing Punchbowl was right when that UFC Ultimate Fighting Challenge started. Right. Right? Like the very, very first ones ever. So Tim... Alexander through his friend Maynard from Tool. Mm-hmm. Maynard was a big Gracie jujitsu guy, right? And so they were, you know, cohorts in doing this Gracie jujitsu stuff. Tim was into it, you know. Okay. And so Tim would would study it and practice it, and you know, oh yeah, we get out. We got out. <clears throat> by the time we got out on the tour, we had some mats and some weights and some stuff that he would practice his stuff on, you know, downtime, but. When we were up there doing punch bowl, Tim was like, dude, you guys, this new thing's coming out. It's called ultimate fighting challenge. I think they called it ultimate fighting. We're like, okay. And it was pay-per-view, you know, and me and Les, you know, would, would watch boxing matches. There was Friday night fights and like the guys would take off and me and Les would sit and have some beers and sit and watch boxing before I'd go home. Cause I only lived, you know, 20 minutes away and the other guys lived an hour and a half away. So they'd bail out and take off and me and Les would hang out and watch some fights. Well, so Tim starts going, dudes, this thing's coming out, you know, hoist Gracie, man, he's going to be in this thing. And we're like, what, 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 what? We didn't know what it was, you know, because we didn't follow fighting or we weren't in some dojo learning how to do karate or jujitsu or whatever. Yeah. So all of a sudden the first one was coming out and it's like, okay, we did the pay-per-view. We stopped recording that night and me and Les and Lur sat in Les's living room and watch those first, the first, and then subsequent bouts that happened in the in the weeks while we were up there. And so that's kind of where that all came from in the realm of Primus. Tim brought that in. Okay. You know? 
of that you're you're asking where did UFC come into primacy because yeah. it was kind of an interest and everyone kind of knew that the Gracie thing was around okay. it. Okay, you know? and on subsequent tours too, like with with Brain and the Brown and the Horde and all that, did that that just wasn't part of the downtime part. Well, I mean, Brain was was not into it, yeah. you know. Yeah, and Lur wasn't into it, and Les wasn't into yeah. it, you know, watching it. We just did it because Tim liked it. You know? Yeah, I didn't know if it rubbed off on the guys, and they were like, you know, because some it's it, there's this. Interesting parallel between touring musicians and, and bands and that sort of thing and athletes where, you know, even Sports Illustrated was like, one wants to be the other. So let's look at this dichotomy, blah, blah, blah. It was right. stupid. But some bands are just really like, I want to watch the fight. Maybe it's stress, for, stress relief. Yeah, it's totally that. But at the same time, you know, like a lot of bands are close. And Primus, we, we were all a close-knit little mm-hmm. foursome of dudes on tour. You know, like I was the assistant. So we would be, okay, we'd have to go to pawn shops and hang out with Les. We'd yeah. all go golfing. Or we have to watch the fights one night in the hotel with Tim. You know what I mean? It yeah. was like, we all kind of did what everybody wanted to do to hang out and be all still not be like, fuck you. You go do what you do, and I'm going to do what I do. You know, we all wanted to keep our little tip bond together. Yeah. You know, Well, that's healthy. Engage in other people's mm-hmm. interests. Re- uh, Frankie, relationship advice. Okay. You got that? <laughs> I really hope yeah. your girlfriend likes David Bowie, by the way. Oh, yeah. Totally. No, I know she does. I'm totally. joking. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to her. I will say, though, that when we were in line for that sausage show <laughs> on New Year's Eve, my wife gave uh, your girlfriend the look and she returned it. And I was just like, oh, they're both. Oh, we're doing him a favor. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. it's like, oh, dang. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're on the yeah. same boat tonight. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Frankie, you like you yeah. dove deep on where bare knuckle boxing came oh, from. Yeah. I just assumed yeah. for as long as humans have had opposable thumbs and fists, they just wanted to pound on each other. But maybe you know more than me. <laughs> All right. So now that we established, you know, what the musical aspects of the song uh, remind us of. It only makes sense that, you know, given the context of the album and the overall tone, that instead of going for modern boxing, Les would go for the real thing, you know, way back in time, because that's what really fits the atmosphere of the album. So fisticuffs or bare knuckle boxing is the original form of boxing. The difference between street fighting and bare knuckle boxing is that, you know, fisticuffs at least had somewhat... uh, a somewhat accepted set of rules. I mean, it was pretty chaotic compared to oh, yeah. modern boxing, but they did have some rules they, they had to stick to. The first newspaper report of a Fisticuffs match dates back to 1681 in England when the protestant Mercury stated, uh, yesterday a match of boxing was performed before the Duke of Aber- Abel Merle between the Duke's footman and a butcher. Um, if you're curious about the outcome, the butcher won the match. <laughs> yeah. In 1826, uh, press coverage, you know, the press coverage about these, these kind of events was largely negative, declaring yeah. that such practices are brutal and detestable in themselves and disgraceful to the country in which they are suffered to take place. What is called by its advocates the science of defense is only the commission, always of horrible violence and sometimes murder. It was pretty frowned upon. Yeah. The record for the longest fisticuffs fight is listed as six hours and 15 minutes for a match between James Kelly and Jonathan Smith in Victoria, Australia on December 3rd, 1855. Smith uh, gave up after 17 rounds. Wow. The bare-knuckle fighter, Jim Mace, is listed as having the longest professional career of any fighter in history. He fought for more than 35 years, and he recorded his last exhibition in 1909 at the age of 78. That is pretty dude, mind-blowing. That dude would have kicked my ass at age 78. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? Uh, wow. Fisticuffs, Fisticuffs was never legal under any federal or state laws in the United States until Wyoming became the first one to legalize them on March 20, <laughs> 2018. You know, prior to that date, the Wait. chief organization for bare knuckle boxing was the magazine for National Police Gazette, and they sanctioned what is considered the last major bare knuckle heavy, heavyweight world championship between John L. Sullivan and Jake Kilrain. On July 8, 1889, with Sullivan emerging as the victor. The early days of Fisticuffs had 
no written rules. So there were no weight divisions mm-hmm. or round limits and no referee. These matches included headbutting, punching, eye gouging, choking, and other techniques that, of course, are not recognized in boxing today. Also, no there were no round limits to fights. An opponent yeah. could be declared a loser and the fight would be stopped, you know, because they would be broken up by a crowd riot, maybe by police interference, or if both men were willing to accept that the contest was a draw. And while fights could have enormous numbers of rounds, the rounds in practice could be quite short. So that's, you know, the origins of the bare knuckle fighting. There's a couple of things. So you you mentioned the six-hour fight that went 17 rounds in just some cursory reading, and it probably depends on location and time period. My understanding was that rounds lasted until a guy was knocked down, and then that was the end of the round. They'd go to their corners and come back. You know, they could use... uh, the, the knockout as some kind of excuse. You know, they would just fall to the ground and stay there for a few a few seconds and then stand up and go to their corner. They would just use it, you know, as an excuse to make time. <laughs> <laughs> and thus the ten count began. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, yeah. Gosh, that just reminds me of uh I think Ken Burns needs to do a ten part series on boxing because I'm thinking of his baseball, you know, documentaries and I only care about the first two episodes because that those were the wild days when when there were no rules or unwritten rules, and that's when things were just so out of control and people were brawling. So yeah, I want to see that same thing for boxing, yeah. man. That's so cool. It's, I, I, it's I a pretty it's a pretty brutal context for a pretty brutal song. I yeah, think. absolutely. So those those snare pops on one and three definitely are those bare knuckle pops. That are just you know whacking someone in the jaw or getting them right into the solar plexus or what what have you. So our our lyrical content uh, has to do with a specific fighter uh, whose name it was James Ambrose. What's interesting is it starts with his death. I think that Les does something pretty clever there. They found James Ambrose dead in his cell. So we we already know oh this guy was killed, but uh, he he went by a bunch of different names such as Yankee Sullivan, which is mentioned in the lyrics. Um, I found a really great site called The Irish Mob. So that'll give you some idea of where this dude came from. Uh, James Ambrose was actually born in County Cork, Ireland, way back in 1811. Uh, They say he grew up in London. He became a prize fighter at an early age. Uh, But he was also involved in crime, I would imagine organized crime, and eventually was jailed and sent to Australia, which of course was a penal colony at that time. So he spent a Spent a bunch of time, at least eight years in Australia. He's he's released. He's hanging out there. And uh, so yeah, I'll give you one guess. Did his years in jail reform him? No. Correct. He didn't even come close. He went right back to a life of crime afterwards. In Australia, apparently he was able to hook up with people there, <laughs> commit crimes there, heavily involved in gang activity, robbing people, beating people up. And then he somehow makes it to New York City in the 1840s. And he's a prize fighter there in his 30s. Um, He also, interestingly, becomes a political enforcer and a fight promoter, and it's in that role as a fight promoter that he's involved in the Lillian-McCoy fight, which Les um, brings into the lyrics as well. So for many years, I thought these were completely different stories, because I was thinking of, like, Jerry, where there's the race car driver and Captain Pierce, two completely different people in two different situations. But Lillian McCoy is actually related to to Yankee Sullivan because he's helping promote that fight, which is illegal, by the way. It, they have to go way out in the boondocks to have this fight. All right. This one is a trip. Are you ready? Oh, can't wait for the 118 <laughs> rounds or however many there were. 120 rounds. It's a really incredible story. On September 13, 1842, Christopher Lilly and Thomas McCoy met in the Bowery in New York City a grudge match that had culminated only a few weeks earlier when Lily challenged McCoy to a fight. Uh And upon his refusal, he punched the unsuspecting McCoy in the face, knocking him to the floor. (laughs) Um, This move was followed by the two men finally agreeing to the match. A journalist for The Ring was present at, at the match, and he shared his experience with great detail. He visited Thomas McCoy on the day of the match, and McCoy promised that he would go to the match to win or die. Uh, quite prophetic. Oh, yeah. Over 1,500 spectators surrounded the arena, which was described as pretty grassy and mostly flat. Christopher Lilly was 
23 years old and 140 pounds, while McCoy was 20 years old and 137 pounds. Did Les get the figures right in the song? Shy of 140 pounds. That's what I remember okay. the lyrics. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, the young men faced each other and flipped a coin, and McCoy won, so he chose the higher ground. But apparently this decision caused him to stand with the sun in his eyes. Each man then handed over $100, the bulk of which would go to the winner of the fight. At precisely 1 p.m., the first round began. McCoy knocked Lily to the ground right away. Throughout the 120 matches, both men would fall frequently. But as you know, there were no rules about how long they could actually stay on the ground. Yeah. By round 30, McCoy was bleeding heavily from his nose, and he had one eye completely swollen shut. Lily had scarcely any bruises, and he continued to not only deliver blows to McCoy, but to also cause the man to trip and fall by his own accord. In round 35, McCoy taunted Lily, pointing to his bloody face and yelling, Why don't you punch me here? And when Lily did, <laughs> McCoy counterattacked, punching him so hard that Lily hit his head on the ring post as he fell down. Oh my gosh, man. The men had been fighting for an hour by the time round 50 came to an end. And while Lily seemed only fairly hurt, McCoy's face was so swollen and disfigured that he could barely see. By round 70, McCoy staggered around the ring, gasping for breath and spitting blood down his chest. Round 88, two hours into the fight, and the crowd is yelling for the fight to end. McCoy's eyes are completely shut. As the fight continued, McCoy would continue knocking uh, the other guy down while the crowd yelled, for God's sake, take them away. <laughs> but somehow, <laughs> somehow McCoy would still stand up, you know, and every few wow. rounds he would try to land a punch on Lily. Wow. Um, undoubted, undoubtedly, both men were exhausted, but McCoy at this point must have already been suffering very severe internal bleeding. He struggled to breathe and he continues to cough blood. But somehow, aided by his corner and by his own determination, he stood up and you know he continued fighting Lily again. By around 107, McCoy continued pursuing Lily without air and his tongue hanging out of his mouth. The, phys- the physician hired by McCoy watched the entire match and he didn't do anything despite the obvious danger. In round 118, McCoy fell to the floor again and the crowd pleaded for his coach and his doctor to save his life. But the coach responded, he ain't half licked yet. <laughs> two rounds. <laughs> That's a terrible rounds, doctor. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Two rounds later, after a final punch by Lily, McCoy lay lifeless on the ground after two hours and 43 minutes of fighting. The match was officially over, and all the spectators witnessed McCoy die right there in the ring. Wow. In the post-mortem examination, the doctors found his lungs were completely filled with blood, so his cause of death was determined as suffocation. The aftermath from McCoy's death... (laughs) It sparked outrage and provided the prize-fighting critics new ammunition to use in their quest to outlaw fisticuffs. On November 22, 1942, Christopher Lilly, the coaches, and the physicians were indicted on charges of manslaughter. After only three hours of deliberation, the jury deemed the defendants guilty. The judge condemned bare-knuckle boxing by declaring that the audience of such events consisted of a large assemble of idle disorderly, vicious, dissolute people who live by violence and who live by crime. Wow. How pissed off do you have to be to keep getting up when you're, you know, drowning in your own blood? Like, I'm not going to let that bastard get, you know, get the best of me. Like, dude, it's okay to take the loss. Like, go get some attention. First of all, and fire your doctor. Your doctor's an asshole. (laughs) He ain't licked yet. Yeah, but it, you know it's really incredible, you know, to consider that the audience for such events probably were, you know, really tough people who enjoyed violence yeah. to that degree. But even even they were begging for the fight to end. They were aghast at what they'd seen. Yeah. Oh, side note: Soya had to go. He was rescuing a kitten from a tree, a boy in a well. I don't know. He said he had to go. <laughs> Yeah, so this less uh, I do remember this, and maybe Frankie, you do too. From once again, these interviews around the press time for Brown album, that he said he went to a, a library and was researching these old boxers. He must have come across this one and said, "Yep, 
this is the yeah. story. This is the guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm certain the story totally stood out for him. Oh, it had to have. You know, we talked about he's not doing these goofy uh, outlandish characters, but when you have two little dudes fighting for a bunch of hours and one of them drowning <laughs> in his own blood, you, you're kind of forced material. to. It is, it is yeah. absolutely Primus material. You go, yes, these guys. And then, of course, it was promoted by old Yankee Sullivan, who had his own problems and was clearly, well, I mean, I wasn't there, but it seems like he was murdered. So, yeah, yeah after all that stuff, you know, he was still a prize fighter. And he was winning fights all over the place. I should say he he won his title, I think, by skullduggery in in some ways. It looks like he was knocked out by Tom Hire in a fight in 1851. Hire claimed the champion of the world, I guess, status as a result of beating Sullivan. But then Hire retired. And then Sullivan said, well, he retired. So because he's the champion and my only loss was to him, I'm the champion. Yeah. <laughs> Solid logic. I'm totally with you there, Sullivan. C- clearly, you haven't had your brains beat in ever. That's That was one of his claims. And then in 1853, he fights this guy Morrissey way out in Massachusetts where the cops can't find him. He ends up losing even though he's doing really well in the first 10 rounds. I guess he's supposed to – he had to vacate his title at that point. It's it's really shoddy all the way around. And eventually, this, this Sullivan guy ends up in California – I don't know if you read this part about him, Frankie. He's what was called a shoulder striker. So he was guarding ballot boxes during elections. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yes. Driving people away. Probably beating the piss out of anybody that tried to vote. You know, an honored American tradition, (laughs) which lasts to this day, apparently. So this dude, he was doing that. And what's interesting is he guards this ballot box and a guy named James Casey is elected to a city office, even though he wasn't even on the ballot. So, okay. <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, a bunch of these guys are thrown in jail, including Sullivan, and he ends up dead in prison. These are the characters, these are the people that Les Claypool is looking for for the Brown album. Like, he wants to scrape the bottom of that barrel. And maybe that's the sound Lur's making in those in that yeah. guitar solo. <laughs> He's That's scraping the bottom <laughs> to find the real all-stars. Now that we have more backstory than we ever cared for, Frankie, we should talk about the lyrics. There's some good <laughs> stuff going on there, though. Uh, I really like the lyrics and the li- the vocal delivery in the sense that he's back to iams, which we haven't maybe heard in a little while. I can't remember the last time I mentioned iams, which, of course, were made famous by Shakespeare. You know, they begged McCoy to cash it in. He said that he would not. That thing. But yeah. I guess I would call it iambic septameter because he has seven iams per line. And of course, he's messing around with enjambment and those other things. You know, in 1842, they went 118 rounds, that little da-da-da-da-da-da. So he's, you know, as a percussive bass player, and he likes to play drums, he does that with his voice, too. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. So, and the lyrics, of course, are fascinating on their own, because he's distilling everything that we've talked about, as far as the stories go, into these lyrics. And so he's doing the iams, he's got his rhyme scheme, um, he has his repeating device of he knew the game of fisticuffs, he knew the game of blank, something that rhymes with fight, um, fight, might, I don't remember the other one. But, but so there's that repetition with a twist each time around, because I remember around Pork Soda, we were talking about, oh, he's coming back and repeating the first verse for the third verse, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that pattern's happening. But this time, with the very rich story that you told, Frankie, there's plenty there. You don't have to repeat anything. So, <laughs> But you certainly have – he can use that device, and everything's a little bit different, but he's still preserving that A-A-B-B-C-C rhyme scheme as well. So there's a lot of really cool stuff happening from a writing standpoint. And then the lyrics, you know, he's he's telling a story kind of straight out of an old book or old newspapers or for that matter. So – I really enjoy the IAMs going on because it matches the baseline and and brain's hi hat too because he's doing a lot of and so we're getting those IAMs even on the hi hat and the ride when brain opens things up with the ride so couple of lines they begged McCoy to cash it in he said that he would not perfect example of those IAMs in play but I think my favorite line Frankie is he spent some time in Botany Bay atoning for his sins because when I hear that line I think Botany Bay. Botany Bay. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. A little bit of Rathacon there. Sorry, guys. Didn't mean to go Star Trek on you. But Les definitely did his research and turned it into um, a story worth listening to. That's that's exactly what I what I wanted to mention. You know, maybe he had, as, as you mentioned, he had like this 
preliminary sketch in his mind about boxers when he heard Brain's drums. So now it's time, you know, to get the lyrics written. I think the majority of songwriters, maybe the, you know, the more ordinary ones, would approach the subject from a first-person perspective. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is Eye of the Tiger. I mean, that song could be about <laughs> anything, but we always associate it with boxing. And it's incredibly right. cheesy, right? So to do it in the first-person perspective is pretty obvious, you know, and it, and it can be pretty boring. So what Les chose to do, you know, take the narration path, is really interesting. But it, it's really fascinating how you have this character, you know, Yankee Sullivan, with such uh, a peculiar life. And then you also have the match between Lillian McCoy, which was absolutely brutal. And then you also have, you know, the origin of fisticuffs as a whole, you know, the whole practice. It's so much information that I find it really mind-blowing how Liz managed to compact everything into the lyrics of the song because, you know, they are not over long. You know, yeah. they go straight to the point, but they cover all of these things pretty well. That is really, really amazing. And it speaks a lot about Liz as a songwriter, that he could do his research and then do these lyrics. It's incredible. I, I mentioned it, that he's distilling all this into these lyrics, but you're absolutely right. It is impressive that he's able to find the highlights or find the most important pieces and give them to us within a rhyme scheme for crying out loud. So yeah, that's really great. That's a great point. You know, hats off to him. And I said that on purpose because we'll get there soon. <laughs> uh, one more thing about boxing before we get into our live tracks uh, that we're going to have a listen to. Uh, I have to make my 1897 connection. I'm going to do it with every Brown album track and... Of course there was boxing in 1897 when the Brown album was actually recorded. And this I had no idea about, Frankie. I'm not a film history guy. I've never really studied film. You know, I did one of my German history classes and we watched M and we watched Metropolis and we watched The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and it was awesome. But uh, I never really dug in to film history too much after that. But in 1897... There was a documentary film called The Corbett Fitzsimmons Fight that was filmed uh, by a guy who actually had worked for Thomas Edison in helping develop the kinetoscope. I don't recall wow. if this was filmed with the kinetoscope, but in 1897, uh, this guy filmed the this heavyweight bow between Corbett and Fitzsimmons, and the running time was about 100 minutes, and it is regarded by some people because it was shown in theaters and that sort of thing. It, it's regarded by some as the world's first feature film. I'm reading yeah. that the film no longer exists in its entirety. Right. However, some sources claim that the film included all 14 rounds of the match. Supposedly, the whole match is there, and there is even some kind of introduction that was filmed for it by legendary heavyweight champion, who might have been the Sullivan guy you were talking about earlier. In the world of the internet, Frankie, nothing dies. So, there are clips of a transfer of this documentary film. So, you can watch uh, two guys go at it 125 years ago in what looked to be very uncomfortable shorts. <laughs> so uh, enjoy that. Uh, so there's the 1897 connection. Big big time boxing match, world's possibly world's first feature film. It's quite Frank, amazing yeah. how much stuff you can actually learn from Primus. We're living proof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait for all our listeners to be telling boxing stories at the dinner table in the coming weeks. <laughs> They're telling the story of Lillian McCoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's drowning in his blood. Eat your potatoes. All right. We're going to start with Detroit State Theater 1997, you know, to listen to how they performed it back in the days of the Brown album. As I said before, it's pretty straightforward. They stuck to the album version. But nevertheless, it's interesting to hear such a rare song at the time. <laughs> it's moving. That sounds pretty good. I like it upbeat yeah. like that. Yeah, that sounds good. I, I don't know if Lur messed up his first note there, but he, he recovered. Uh, my favorite part is the, the gal there. 
Yeah, somebody was certainly <laughs> stepping on her toes. Gosh <laughs> sakes! What? Uh, it sounds good though. That's you know that's what I was asking Soya about, and I wish she was here to listen to that because you can hear that it's those cleaner tones, those live tones mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. that they're that they're achieving, and it sounds different. In a way, it kind of sounds like there's more space because they're not blowing out our speakers with their with their recording setup like they are on the studio album. But, you know, in another way, I love the tempo. So it sounds good to me. Pretty cool rendition. What's next? Uh, we have Everglades National Park 2008 at the Langerado Music Festival. What is notable about this is that, of course, it's fancy band. There's no guitar. So we have Skerrick doing uh, the main riff. And this performance just reminded me that when I saw Primus uh, at the Silver Anniversary in 2016, I actually witnessed Skerrick playing saxophone during Fisticuffs with Primus on stage, which was pretty amazing. But, you know, this one is 2008 with the fancy band. My bad. What I appreciate is you can do saxophony things with that, and it sounds like it's a saxophone line. <laughs> yeah, totally. It makes me miss Larry a little bit and Brain, but it sounds, you know, and that could be partly due to the recording, but it sounds sounds pretty interesting. With any less side project, the musicians have to adapt to, to the songs, you know? So if there's no guitar, if there's, um, you know, no whatever was present in the original song, you know, they have to manage, just like Mike Dillon told us. That's right. Yeah. So that's what, and that's what they did. I'm totally. sure his solo was pretty all, wild. For all our listeners out there, if you hunt down that particular performance, let me just warn you that it's 17 minutes long. <laughs> so it's a crusade only for the brave. <laughs> it looks like, uh, ooh, is this a uh, fungi ensemble one next? Yeah. This is Pompano Beach 2009 with the fungi ensemble. So now it's another different configuration, another different sound. Sorry, everybody listening who just yelled at me. It's Fungi Band, not Fungi Ensemble. My bad. why that makes me laugh but it does <laughs> it sounds even more vintage than the than the brown album version right it does with the cello it sounds very brownie it just sounds people playing with not homemade instruments but acoustic <laughs> yeah. instruments you know and then the the way that that drum kit's set up and then mike you know mike dylan playing his part it does sound very of the 19th century yeah, so totally. Yeah, what a good choice. I mean, it does sound like a throwback tune uh, with that lineup. So the cello is doing something interesting during the verses, just hitting on the, the upbeat. Mm-hmm. And going back through, and I think I mentioned this last week, I'm listening really closely now on some, some nicer headphones. And Larry's doing something like that during the verses, too. He's not sitting idly by. He is picking. It's very muted, but he's doing a little bit of picking of his own on the studio Uh track. And I was Uh remiss that I didn't mention that earlier because, you know, I used to think, wow, Larry's got a really easy part-time job there because he only plays on half of the track most of the time. But he's almost always doing something at a really low volume to provide even just the teeniest little bit of texture. So if you're listening closely, you'll be rewarded. As you know... The song became a, a jam vehicle, both for Primus and for Les Claypool side projects. So with this same performance from the Fungi Band in 2009, we're going to hear a really cool improv. 
Okay. I'm not a big envelope filter guy, as you know, but that sounded pretty cool to me. I'll, I'll let it yeah. live. <laughs> it's really cool how he transitions back into the song. That that sounded nice, yeah. And, of course, he's a pro. He knows what to do in that situation. But he that yep. just sounded like less being less for most of it. He's just, I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to groove my little thing here, you know, and just stay inside that little burnap, burnap, burnap box and mine it for something. So that's pretty cool. All right. I can live with that. Now, I'm going to redeem myself because I do believe this is our fun guy ensemble cut next. Right on. Okay. So this is uh, the green space in New York. Uh, this was a, a webcast to promote the Chocolate Factory album back in 2014. And it's, the, it's, you know, it's a great quality example of what Fisticuffs was like during the tour. There's that Elvis voice. This is right. And I think, isn't Tim's playing that Wonka kit there, right? Is that correct? It's the Wonka kit. That's why there are strange noises here and there all the time. Ah, I like that, actually. It gives it really nice atmosphere. Just another way to do it. It's almost like the creepy version, you know? There's the creepy exactly. version. Yeah. He's ah. got a ton of stuff that he can play on, just random, random noises. Looks like we have one more. Yeah, the last one belongs to Port Chester 2017, um, Ambushing the Storm Tour. Uh, as you know, they loved playing the songs since 2010. So this is a really good quality example of Primus doing the song many years after it was originally recorded. like it i think tim is doing a really really great job doing brains part yes definitely and and he's having a good time it sounds like with it because he's putting his own little spin in a couple of spots i think it sounds like he's kind of moving you know making it a tim song almost it sounds great um and les gives himself plenty of space to play around underneath larry there as larry's solos and and larry even does the little shine and i didn't even talk about this on the studio version he does that there's that little shine sound after his solo but he, he approximates it there with <laughs> yeah. that uh, with hitting above the headstock there. That was cool. Um, I'm going to clip that sound of me going and put it on my CV for when I try to do voice work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> really great selections, Frankie. Thank you very much. I, I, you know, I don't listen to as many live shows as you, so this is educational for me as well. And I think uh, Fisticuffs, I've it's never been a downer. There aren't that many Primus songs that are live, so this is one I always look forward to. Yeah, it's a great song, and you know because it's. Written in such a clever way, it gave us a ton of stuff to talk about. Fisticuffs, we're bringing in the cut, man, because you've been tracked. Next time, Frankie, you've got the Midas touch. Can't wait for that one. Ladies and gentlemen, sorry, Soya had to go early, but duty calls. We will all be back with you next week, including our good friend Luke Beeman from Les Special to talk about Golden Boy. Once again, we are at Primus Tracks on Instagram and Twitter. Message us uh, when you throw up some stickers around town. If you want some stickers, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Comment on our post. Tell Frankie how handsome he is. You can see him at Frankie <laughs> Beristein on Instagram as well. And last thing, because Soy's not here, what's your Bowie note of the day? Oh, my Bowie, my Bowie nuggets of the day is yeah. that in preparation for the Serious Moonlight tour, Bowie actually took up 
boxing lessons to get in shape. Um, his driver introduced him to to a coach in Austin, and you know Bowie was pretty nervous because he hadn't toured for five years at that point. So he felt that he would not survive the tour if he didn't get in shape. Mm. And the first time he met the coach, you know, the coach uh, told him it would be an honor to train you, but I'm not going to do it if you smoke because Bowie was smoking during their first encounter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, he was pretty straightforward. And he says that after that, you know, when they started, Bowie was extremely disciplined. He was on on a schedule around the clock, but nevertheless, he always made it to all his lessons and Wow. He really got in shape. Oh yeah. If you wanna if you wanna kick some habits or if you wanna kick your own butt, take up boxing. Later days. No one knew for sure if Soya was his name. Viva la France, Viva la France. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.